0: Good, good, good. It is lovely to see you all here. Uh, that was an incredible, incredible introduction. I don't know where I go from there. I feel like it's only down from there, you know? Classic and perfect were your two adjectives to start. I'm going to need you to CC that to my wife as quickly as you can. Like, but uh, welcome, everybody. Welcome, everybody, from the Pacific Northwest. I come from the land of Oregon, and I extend you my greetings from all your brothers and sisters out there. Yeah. Yes where we riot and protest just because we can. That's what we love to do. We, uh, Yes, I don't know if any of you have been out my way before. Uh, Oregon is an incredible place. We have lots of tall trees and wild animals, Pacific Ocean, white people, tons of those, lots of those. And uh, I'd love to have you come visit sometime. Apparently a lot of my people are coming to live with y'all now. There's there's just a great migration happening. There's just a... All kinds of people. I don't know if you're like, uh, excited about that or not, but uh, that's a thing that is going on. Uh, so anyway, I'm glad to be here with you guys, uh, at least momentarily, uh, and, uh, and to share with you guys. Uh, I love where you are at right now, um, and I think you are where many churches are currently in our moment, talking about a series called Presence. Now, I'll just put all the cards on the table. Oregon isn't exactly a place that's uh, known for its uh, church uh, or pretense. And they can uh, they can smell uh, they can smell the stuff like about a mile away. Um, so where I where I come from, our uh, the county where I live in uh, is uh, was the least church county in all of America. Where I started as the pastor there. Now we're not anymore. So yes, we started from the bottom, and like now we're here. You know what I mean? Just just here. We have we're not quite Drake level. We haven't made it quite there. But you know we're rising, and uh, it is not the place where people go for religion—at least not the Christian variety, anyway—and. Where I'm from, uh, there is a strong aversion to all things that feel institutional or formal or anything like that. And in fact, church gatherings themselves are treated with incredible suspicion and people who have titles like pastors or reverend or minister are also treated with incredible suspicion. I remember actually one moment that sticks out very vividly in my head is like the archetypal story for like how to understand where I'm from. Before the pandemic, we met in a historic theater in downtown Corvallis, and it was a beautiful theater on the inside. It was gorgeous, just dripping with character, oozing with it. It was made in the 1920s, beautifully designed on the inside. It was absolutely gorgeous. It was hipster paradise, you know what I mean? It's the exposed brick, the whole deal. It's where every, like, hipster loved to come and just, like, be. Uh, You could go a couple blocks and get a craft beer or an organic, naturally sourced, raw, straight from, like, like the animal digestive tract system of, like, some Peruvian thing, and, like, you could get that. uh, You could get that. So it was just, like, literally, like, heaven on earth for, like, all of the lumberjacks around where I am, and they just loved it there. And one day I was outside of the theater on a Sunday morning, and we were experiencing a very odd occasion. It was a really rare moment where this strange orb in the sky was radiating heat and light toward us. I don't know what you all call it. I'm not really not familiar with it, Uh, but it was just a strange, warm day. Uh, I believe you call it sunny, is what you would describe it as. And uh, and so there was lots of people out walking about downtown. And as church was beginning, I was outside greeting and saying hello to my peoples, and inside the music was rocking, and outside there was a gaggle of typical, very typical Corvallis ladies, ambiguously old, they were either 30 or 70, it was difficult to tell, and they were walking down the street, and uh, they were dressed uh, in so- uh, sandals with socks, uh, fleece, vests, and corduroys. So, uh my peeps. And as they listened to the music, one, like, turned to me and said, like, what's going on in there? I said, church. And she looked at me with this furrowed brow and this very unisex haircut and said, why would anyone waste a perfectly good Sunday morning on church? I don't know. I'll, I'll do you one better. Why would anyone give their life vocation to a church? That's like an even worse thing. Like, I guess who you're talking to? is crazy. Yeah, that's that's the sentiment of where I'm from. And uh, why would anyone be wasting a perfectly good Sunday morning? Why would you? Why would you waste such a perfectly good Sunday morning here? Isn't that a good question? Why would you? why would you now i get it maybe culturally here you guys are much more known as the bible belty sort of place and so maybe church for you is something that's been ingrained it's just a routine or a rhythm like brushing your teeth that you just do almost with autonomic like automatic systems that just operate in the background of your life uh, more than likely most of you have shoehorned church into your life some way somehow because it isn't becoming the normative thing i think even around here more and more so but The question of why our presence in the midst of God's presence and God's people, why that is so significant, I believe deserves a moment. And going through a series like this with all the cards on the table is just simply about the reality that pre-pandemic to now post-pandemic, we're living in the reality where many people have lost their faith and deconstructed many people have walked away from church community. Many people are still engaging maybe on some sort of informal or online variety. But now the question really remains, have we arrived at a new normal in culture where technology and Zoom meetings can replace the personal presence that we experience between God and his people? Or are we abandoning something that's actually quite core and central to the Jesus movement and what Jesus himself is actually calling us to do? We have to ask that. Now to many, to, to many who are listening, you might even consider whether you're online or in, in the room, it almost seems like quite self-interested for a pastor of any variety, whether it's Pastor James or myself, to come into church and then extol the virtues of attending church, or gathering on a Sunday morning, or a small group, or a discipleship track, or gathering together with God's people. It seems like it's almost a conflict of interest. Now, one thing I do know about Pastor James that that man's ego does not seem to be tied to any sort of stats or statistics or, or numbers of any kind. But there's, he is among like the few people that I know that I can say deeply, deeply love this flock, and I know he deeply desires the best for this flock. And I know his conviction is the same one that I share: that being in the physical presence of God's people, while we're in the presence of God, is a very powerful thing and something that should not be quickly forsaken. And I would like to help us walk through why that is so important and why that is so significant here this morning. So where I want to start is Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, if we can go there. If you got a Bible on your phone or one of these dead tree versions, feel free to turn there. Romans chapter 6, we're going to start from verse 16, if that's quite all right with you. Good, great, here we go. Verse 16 says, don't you know, I feel like that's like a Minnesota accent coming out of me somewhere somehow, but like, don't you know, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, that you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. Yeah, there's just a fun passage you love to drop, you know, in casual conversation at your favorite cocktail party, you know what I mean? Filled with all kinds of vocabulary words like sin and slavery and righteousness but there's something very powerful and very important that is really at the core, I believe, of the message of Jesus and the reality that he speaks to. Namely, that human beings are not independent, autonomous uh, creatures. That you and I were made by God and for God, by a God who in himself is three in one, himself who is a loving relationship, and he made us in his image for intimate relationship with him and others. And that relationship where we give our allegiance and our trust to him and follow in his wisdom and ways is what the Bible describes as life. That you and I don't live on our own and life isn't something that we possess inherently, but life is a gift from God so long as we are connected to God. And that gift of life that God gives evaporates when we disconnect from him in our rebellion. And this is what happens very early on in the human story. And this is why we describe even the current human condition human beings are disconnected from god in our rebellion and the ironic like horrific twist to it all is that it was the sense of feeling like if i walk away from god i can truly be free and outside of his reign and rule over my life but in doing so the bible says the cruel twist is that you didn't release yourself from slavery to god you just enslaved yourself to someone or something else because human beings are by their very nature going to serve, worship something or someone. The only question is, who are you worshiping and are they worthy of it? And can they deliver on the life that they promise you? Now, the people where I'm from are convinced that their kombucha and their nature walks are absolutely where life is going to be found. But then a pandemic comes along and exposes. That what we thought was comfortable and safe and predictable is quite fragile. We have one of the uh, regional directors of our whole uh, hospital system goes to uh, a church and I was meeting with him in late 2020 and we were talking about the virus and protocols and so on and so forth and he was helping me kind of lead through the moment. He was super helpful. And he said to me, uh, Seth, just for perspective right now, In our COVID ward, it's almost empty, praise God. But our psych ward is overflowing. The COVID epidemic, like it's a real thing. It's an important thing to pay attention to and take seriously. However, no one is taking seriously other pandemic. It's a pandemic of anxiety and emotional health that is off the charts and no one has any answers for at the moment and the reality of the fragility of our human condition, thinking that we can find and define life on our own terms, somehow gets all crumbled down to pieces once we realize how fragile and susceptible we are. And no matter how convinced you are of God's irrelevance you cannot sequester the anxiety that just pops up all over the place when you have to be responsible for your own life and death. Now, I, I also understand that when the Bible uses words like slavery and slavery to God and slavery to righteousness, that that's also uh, a bit of a difficult concept to process given our historical chattel version of slavery that we had here in the Americas, and horrific sin, and that that was. And this is in no way trying to somehow, like, hmm, trying to whitewash the concept of it, but it is important to note that the biblical version of it was different than the American version of it. Right. Namely, this was something far more akin to what we would call indentured servitude. And especially in the Roman context here, this was actually a pathway for people in uh, high levels of debt or in extreme poverty to rise up out of it. In a sense, it was almost kind of like a social welfare welfare system where someone could choose to enter into slavery in order to pay off debts or to rise up economically, which is already a huge difference for our version of it because it was not predicated on kidnapping. Also, within the Roman society, you wouldn't be able to walk down a street and easily identify externally who was a slave and who was not by their outward appearance because it wasn't race-based. And people that lived as slaves were often able to purchase their way out of it and move on in life and step forward with it. And it was like for right or for wrong, a system by which people could take a step forward and have their needs met if their only alternatives were complete, completely being destitute. Now all that being said, this still leaves us with this very simple concept that would come from the mouth of Jesus and the early church repeatedly. That you and I, you and I, are not the products of our own free will and rational thinking. That what we choose and how we live is less a byproduct of our own free will and objective thinking. You and I are influenced, influenced to a significant measure, to to a degree that the Bible would call being enslaved. And what you call choice, the Bible says, no, 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 no. (laughs) Who do you think presented you that very limited range of options to begin with? I remember having a conversation with a young man on the football team many years ago. And uh, I knew this young man relatively well, and I knew the life that he was living at the time. And I had a moment to sit down with him at one point because uh, his ride was late in the parking lot, and so I had a free moment to shoot my shot. And, uh, and I asked him, hey, you got a church or sort of spiritual background of any kind? And he said, oh, yeah, 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 I grew up going to church. Love church. Church is great. I was like, oh, fantastic. Do you go now? No. Are you interested in God now? No. Interesting. Explain to me how that happened. Well, he began to explain to me, like, here's the deal. Uh, I want to be a deeply devoted, godly man. No kidding. Yep. So explain to me the way that you are now. He said, I got it covered. He says, I'm going to sow my wild oats now. And he was a widely reputed womanizer. I'm going to sow my wild oats now. Get this. So I'll get it out of my system later. And then I'll be able to settle down with my bae and we will have an amazing life together. And I said, that sounds brilliant. One small problem, common sense. Uh, But you know, other than that, (laughs) and I posed one simple question to him. I said, how are you so sure that how you're living now isn't going to get it out of your system, but is actually only going to addict you to it so that when you do get married, you'll actually not be able to break it and ruin this very like, ideal picture of a godly family you actually want. You should have seen the guy's face. I said, how do you know you're not going to just cheat on your wife, be addicted to pornography, and never be satisfied with the life you say you want? You think you're free? I'm oh, not so sure. And at this point, he got really emotional. I said, all right, I didn't mean to you know, hurt your feelings, sort of. Tell me what's going on. He said, I, um, that was my dad. He always cheated on my mom, and I hated him for it. So I never wanted to be like my dad, and this was my plan. This is my plan. I'm going to get out of my system now so that I can be the husband and father my dad never was. Yeah, I get it but you're choosing to serve and worship a God that cannot supply you the family that you desire later. I asked him this, I said, what kind of a woman do you want to marry? Beautiful, godly, pure, excellent. I want that for you. What kind of a man do you think you're gonna have to be to attract a woman like that? The face. And at some point, he started getting a little bit defensive. And he said, you know what, Seth, all you Christians, you, you sit on your moral high horse telling me how I'm living isn't right. But you guys live such restricted lives. And though he doesn't use the word, he was alluding to it directly. You guys are the slaves. You guys are the ones that always have to show up to church, be there all the time, follow all the rules. Like, you guys are far more enslaved than me. Okay, here's the problem. I could look at porn and masturbate tonight if I want. I could cheat on my wife tomorrow. I know there's plenty of desperate women out there. I could steal, I could lie. I can do all that anytime I want. I am free to do so. Can you stop? Careful who you call the slave, my friend. You just don't get around the reality that slavery to Jesus looks very different than any other slavery in this world. The slavery in this world will bind you and hold you and restrict you and limit you. It'll take all the possibilities of flourishing your life and begin to collapse it down to a very narrow spectrum. Ultimately, it just leads you to places you don't wanna go eventually where your even choices themselves start to be taken over and you start becoming a person you never envisioned becoming. But the life of Jesus goes brighter and brighter, goes from glory to glory and faith to faith. It looks like slavery from the outside, but from the inside, it's a love relationship with my Father that causes me to live for the very purposes for which I've been designed. It helps me to say no to the short-term pleasures of this world because I know I have joy everlasting in eternity. I am free and yet I'm a slave. You are a slave and you're just going to be enslaved. From the outside, I get it. But from the inside, I got joy, I got peace, I got hope. And what most of us have is wishful thinking. And where this hope comes from, where this life comes from is choosing whom you will serve, who you will worship, who will actually be your master. Because who is the master over you will determine what you're ultimately connected to and what you will become addicted to. Every human being is an addict to something or someone. And this is the question. Who are you gonna be an addict to? Who are you gonna be an addict to? And when we are connected to Jesus, we find ourselves addicted to sacrificial, loving relationship. And when we're disconnected from Jesus, we'll just find ourselves addicted to self centeredness. Pick your variety. <laughs> now, This is a powerful reality. Dr. Henry Cloud has an amazing quote that speaks to this, of what it means to be this connected into Jesus. And what he says is that there is a real, tangible, and measurable power that comes from relationships with God and others that essentially when we find ourselves serving Jesus and laying our lives down before Jesus and deeply connected into him and his people, That the promise of Romans 6 comes to life where we will experience righteousness and life in Christ. And that power that Jesus offers gives us something profound. Now, in this specific passage, there's something really important that's easy to overlook. Because if you do any level of theological study, what you're going to find is that all the amazing power in the Bible is usually found in the smallest words. In particular, in Romans 6, it's the word in. It says we're given life in Christ. In Christ. In Christ, in Christ, not with Christ, but in Christ, in Christ. And what this means is not just that we're given some kind of a relationship of a life coach to walk alongside us and point about good things and bad things, but we actually get a life where we get to live in intimate union with the Son of God himself, that his life he now shares and we take on as our life, that we actually live in such closeness to him, it could only be accurately described as in him. And when we are in him, the resources and love and power that we experience are everything that are available to Jesus himself, not based on what we deserve, but based on who Jesus is. Which means this. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, So I have loved you, and everything the Father has given me, my Father will give to you. That when you're in Jesus, Jesus doesn't just introduce us say, hey, Father, here's Seth. Seth, here's the Father. You guys can get to know each other, go on a little first date, you know what I mean? What's your favorite color? You know, where are you from? What'd you major in in college? He doesn't give us that kind of a relationship with the Father. You know what he does instead? He invites us into himself, into deep, intimate union, connection with him. And from that place, he shares his perfect relationship with his Father with us. I don't start from scratch. I start from Jesus. Which means an overwhelming amount of love and power is now available to me because I'm in him. It's not just the presence of God with me. It's me enveloped within the holy, loving, and powerful presence of God. And what Dr. Cloud, social sciences, and common human experiences throughout the ages all testify to is that this power is real. It's tangible and it's measurable. It's not just abstract, or spiritual, as if there's some kind of power that we get from Christianity, but no one can define it, no one can explain it, no one can measure it, no one can really feel it. We just kind of believe it by faith, ignoring all the facts on the ground. The truth of the matter is, is that living a life that serves Jesus actually gives us power when we're in his presence and the presence of his people. There is real, tangible, measurable power that comes from a relationship with God and his people. It's why presence together is so important. Now this is nowhere more obvious than when you just look at basic health statistics, that longevity is primarily determined by the quality of your relationships. Did you realize this? That you can eat all the best organic food in the world. You can kale yourself to death and go to CrossFit every day. And that might help out your health in the overall, but studies show time and time again there is no more significant factor than your relational health in life. They find among elderly that go through strokes or heart attacks that those that go through some sort of rehab program in community recover at 80 to 90%, far above anyone else that does it in isolation. And this is nowhere more profound than in the recovery community itself. There was a man by the name of Bruce Alexander, who was a Canadian researcher, I believe in the 70s, and the prevailing theories around addiction at that time came about through experiments done with Rats. Trying to understand the effects of drugs on the human brain and what produces addiction and how to ultimately overcome it was something that scientists were very interested in, so they tested on rats. And how they would do it is they would stick two water bottles inside a rat cage. They would stick one bottle that was laced with heroin or cocaine, and the other bottle was just water. And when they would stick this in the cage with the rat, the rat would go to the cocaine water time and time again. And the rat would consume so much cocaine water that almost without fail, they would overdose and kill themselves. And so this was the prevailing theory of how to treat addiction. There really is no treatment. For a lot of time, there was just panic and fear. Don't say, just say no. Because you have to keep drugs away from people at all costs because if they had any exposure to them, it's all going to lead them straight to addiction and death. But then Bruce Alexander came along and says, was there something flawed with this experiment? And so he said, the idea of the rat being alone is interesting, what might happen if he wasn't? So he created what is now famously known as Rat Park. Rat Park was like Disneyland for rats. It was filled with adventure, fun, toys, things to play, do, have purpose, male and female rats that could do what male and female rats do. There was all kinds of things to have, meaningful community with other rats, and the same two water bottles were placed inside of their cage, one laced with cocaine and the other that was just pure water. You know what they found in Rat Park? Though some of the rats tried the cocaine water, almost none of them got addicted to it, and none of them died from an overdose. And Bruce Alexander concluded from this study that the opposite of addiction was not sobriety, it was connection. Portugal picked up on this study in the 80s and early 90s, and they had a drug problem of heroin that was rampant. At 1.1% of the Portugal population was addict, highly addicted to heroin, not just using, addicted. And their prison systems were overflowing and they realized the definition of insanity is just doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And so they tried to take a different approach to address the rampant drug use and the addictions within their country. And so what they did, rather than just incarcerate and isolate people, is they brought people into community and they even supplemented employers that would hire them so they could have meaningful purpose in their life and be around non-addicted people. And the recovery rates started going through the roof. All this to say, it just echoes what Jesus of Nazareth said, that our lives were meant for a loving relationship with God and others. And there was a real, measurable, tangible power that comes when we're connected with God and others. My friends, you don't have behavioral sin problems. You have relationship problems. You have connection problems. When I flew here to Nashville, I got told at the beginning of the flight that I was supposed to turn my phone to airplane mode, which always, uh, I'm a little bit of an Oregonian contrarian, so I'm like, my little phone could bring down this whole plane, really. Side point. But this time, I legitimately forgot. Legitimately forgot. My phone was not on airplane mode, and I boarded the plane with a full battery. When I got off the plane, my battery was like at 60%. It wasn't that long of a flight, but it was a lot of battery drained. Do you know why? Because when the phone is not turned to airplane mode, it continues to search for a network. It continues to search for a connection. And the battery is being drained in the background as it is constantly searching for a connection, but can't find one. And my phone would settle for anything. Now my phone, even when it's in airplane mode, it's still pretty cool. It's got tons of reruns of The Office on it. Angry Birds. Wordle. But when it is connected, the power to be connected with almost every human on the planet, schedule my Uber and a reservation at a restaurant and do unimaginable tasks, now it becomes possible. Some of you know what this feels like to be searching for network. And you're wandering around with your soul longing for the connection that will supply you the power to actually experience the abundant life Jesus promised. But, my friends, we need presence, not once a month presence. And it's not just showing up either sitting in rows and staring at one, obviously handsome dude from the Northwest. That's what my mom told me. It's not enough. You need to know how to be known. That when someone asks you how you are to not deflect with sarcasm, humor, or the overly obviously overused word in my context, fine. You need to know how to pursue knowing others, to be okay even if they're not okay, to not have to be everyone's rescuer or helicopter parent, but to know how to sit in the midst of someone else's pain and allow them to share who they are and where they are. You need connection. I'm doing a doctorate right now and it's dealing deeply with issues of psychology and the literature is just overwhelming. You know how many different therapy techniques there are out there? and everyone has their favorite, but you know what all the good therapists are saying? Pick your technique, just pick it. Pick a lane and run. But what really heals people, it's the relationship. It's the relationship with therapist and client and more importantly, with client and community. I'm telling you, it's everywhere. And once you see it, you won't unsee it. That there is real, measurable, tangible, power that comes from connection with God and others. That being in your presence in worship today, sitting in the overlap of heaven and earth, experiencing God's presence with you all, hearing your faith poured out as a sacrifice of praise, it gives me power. There's something that happens in me. Sin becomes far less appetizing. The cocaine water becomes far less of an option. I feel it every time I'm with God's people. And when I'm with Pastor James and having dinner with him, I go home to my hotel room last night and I feel bulletproof. Because there's something about connection. There's something about relationship. And it's not because I'm very convinced of my willpower. I'm very unconvinced of my willpower. I'm just deeply in faith for God's power that comes through connection with him and his people. So my friends... My friends, this is no invitation to try harder or do better. This is an invitation to connect with God and others, to be present in the room. To not treat this as just another routine that you walk through on the mundane. But just like the scripture's command, to not give up gathering together as some are obviously in the habit of doing. Because there is real measurable, tangible power that comes into our lives when we're in the presence of God and others. When we realize we are fully known and we actually can actually know God because we're in Christ. And our lives can be known by the people around us and I don't care where you are or how you're living or how things are going. There's only two types of people in this world. Those in recovery and those in denial. I get asked a lot, what's the biggest problem you find in your church in Corvallis? It's mediocrity. Jesus is so far off of the radar. A God with a heavenly designed purpose for your life that desires intimate love with you is so off the radar. People settle for so less, less, just mediocrity. Christians coming to church, I'm fine. God did not die on the cross so you could be fine. He wants life and life to the full. He desires you to have more than just to be okay. He desires you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, hand in hand with your savior, knowing that death doesn't ever get the final say over you, knowing that surely you will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. He desires more for you. And there is real, Measurable, tangible power that comes when you draw intimately into relationship with God and his people. So my friends, come closer. Open up. I praise God for vaccines, but there is no vaccine for the emotional and relational instability of our world. Only Jesus can save us from that. And if the people of God are not those that live in that reality, what hope is there for the world? If this isn't the city on a hill, if this isn't the light of the world, if we aren't the people that embody the power of God that is real, measurable, and tangible in our life together with him, if it isn't seen in us, where else are you going to see it? My friends, Come home. Some of you are physically here. But it's time to be here. Some of you aren't here. I implore you, as a pastor, come home. We need you, and you need us, and we need to be in the presence of God together. Because, because, we can say it together, there's real, measurable, tangible power that comes from relationship with God and others. Father, that is my prayer. In the name of Jesus, I am asking for the real, measurable, tangible power of God to flow into this church. God, I'm asking that you would reach deep into the hearts of the men and women here who've just been captured by anxiety and depression and fear. Lord, I'm asking that you'd minister to hearts that know that they're addicted and trapped. Father, I'm praying that people would lay down their willpower and would choose connection with you and others. Father, I'm asking that small groups would bond and become intimate. I'm asking that this church's gatherings would be full of life and praise. Father, I'm asking that you would pour your love into our hearts through your Holy Spirit that we might find deeper intimacy in you and with one another. Father, I thank you for the amazing news to be your children. And what the world calls slavery from the outside, we know is freedom on the inside. Oh God, save us. Save us from isolation save us from our independence, save us from our arrogance, save us from every demonic assignment that wants to isolate us. in our physical presence, and our emotional presence from you or anyone else. God, we come before you, and we're asking for you to heal us. Be our God. And lead us to your salvation. Jesus, we pray this all in your name, and we trust you for this. Amen.